Hello. Hello. Hello and welcome back to Industry Tactics, a podcast where we talk to several outsider and weirdo artists in Canada and beyond. My name is Friendly Rich, I'm your host, and this is episode number 47, my talk with um, spoken word artist and chameleon, as she describes herself, Myra Davies. We, I, we, we had a Skype call, she was out west at the time that we spoke, and um, she talked about running Expo 86 in BC and working with folks uh, such as Skinny Puppy in their early years and bringing Neubauten, Einstein Neubauten over from Germany to perform here in Canada for the first time and then connecting with them, uh, Gudrun Gut and uh, Beate Bartel and uh, specifically the 30-year-plus the, the collaborative relationship that she's forged with those two. And we played tracks from her, her latest record, Sirens. It, it was a delight to speak with her. So so interesting those those years when they were bringing down the wall in Germany and her perspective on um, on just collaborating in, in the German underground um, and back and forth between Canada and Germany. Really fascinating career she's had to date. So I hope you enjoy it. This is my talk with Myra Davies. Davies. Uh, welcome to Industry Tactics, Myra. Thank you. Oh, you sound great. Where are you right now? You're Skyping. We're Skyping for those listeners at home. I'm Skyping in Vancouver. And what's Pacific the weather Coast. What's the weather like out there in Vancouver right now? Well, it's raining, of course. Of course. Of course. And uh, now tell us, Myra, wh- wh- what brings you to Vancouver at the moment? I don't like the winter on the prairies. Okay. I've had it with the winter on the prairies. Well, actually, anywhere else in Canada. I've lived in Montreal, Toronto, yeah. but I'm from the prairies. None of it appeals to me in January. <laughs> so uh, so you'd rather have that dreary yet not too cold uh, January, February in, in Vancouver then, eh? Right. Cool. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, welcome to the podcast. We're honored to have you on. Thank you. And um, please, for those who don't know about your work, I don't know why they wouldn't, but why don't you tell us, if you can, a little bit about your your artistic output, where you come from artistically. Uh, well, there are lots of reasons why you, people in Canada, in any case, might not know about my work, because I work primarily in Europe. Yeah. Out of... Berlin, and I've done a lot of things in Canada, but in the recording area, 
I'm on a German record label out of Berlin. I work in collaboration with German electronic composers, and all of the promotion is uh, is overseas. So, um, so it's pretty. It's not. Uh, it's not a mystery that I'm not very well known in Canada. Yeah, you're you're so you're back and forth. Um, I guess between is is it between Germany and Canada then, Myra? Yes, and, I divide my time, okay. as they say in the artist bios. Yes, love it, love it. Between Berlin and Vancouver, and wherever, or wherever in Canada. I'm actually based in Alberta, but I'm not. Yeah, okay. I'm wherever. Okay. Actually, I've spent more time in Montreal this year. Wow, well, wherever wherever the art takes you, I guess. And are, are when you're in these cities in Canada. Um, you are also collaborating and work and working on your art here too, right? It's not like you come here to digest and over no. over there to produce, right? Well, actually, I these days I do mainly produce overseas. Yeah, but in the past, uh, particularly for the decade of Miasma, which was my intercontinental first recording project or multidisciplinary project, actually with Gudrun Good. We split, uh, it was pretty much evenly divided between Canada and, uh, and Berlin in terms of uh, production because I was in, I lived in Banff at that time and because my production house was the Banff Center. Uh-huh. So I, we did uh, some, a series of large theatricals in Alberta and recorded all the Miasma CDs in Alberta. Oh, right on, right on. And but that project ended in about 2003. Uh, Miasma would have ended in 2003, but I guess you've kept working with... Yes. After that, my uh, my CDs came out under my own name so right. that I could work with different composers, but Gudrun still produced them all, and they were, were released on her label. Okay, and for those who aren't familiar with, uh, with Gudrun, um, can you give a little bit of her background, if, if possible? Sure, Gudrun Gut, um, G-U-T, but it's pronounced Gut. It means uh, good in German. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a, a progenitor of the Berlin scene out of the 80s. She began working there, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s. She was. Uh, she had a number of projects that were always very underground, very experimental, very edgy. Mm-hmm. And she was part of the original lineup of Einstritz and de Neubauten. Cool. Um, cool. Along with Beata Bartel, who I also worked with on my last uh, release in 2017. And uh, yeah, so she had a long career. And then she and Beata and, mm-hmm. uh, and um, oh, I can't remember the vocalist's name. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, they had a band called Malaria oh, in neat. the 80s. It did very well. They toured with Nick Cave in the States and played Studio, what was it, Studio 21 or Studio some number in New York? Do you yeah, remember? He, no, I don't, but we'll say 21. Studio something. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they, so they did very well. Wow. And when I met Gudrun in 1990, mm-hmm. uh, just after the wall fell, Wow. Uh, she was still, malaria was still going, but it was... It was sort of in retreat, mm-hmm. and she was moving from a kind of a band setup to electronic projects. And is that would 1990 be the first time you went to Germany, or 
No, no, it wasn't the first time. Okay. I went to Germany as a guest of Neubauten in uh, 87, was it, or 88? See, I brought them to... Uh, I brought them to Vancouver to play Expo. It was a kind of a sabotage project. Neat. Neat. Hmm. Wow. Oh, you, you, what do you mean by sabotage project? Well, I mean, I, I was a producer of international yeah. attractions for, yeah. on, for the, an on-site amphitheater. Okay. So I put them through the uh, system as a new music ensemble. I see. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, it was the only way to get them you know to to do what i wanted to do with them Very and cool. uh and i had connected to them through skinny puppy who i was working with as my sanity project after hours um while working at the corporation during the day you see but yeah. that, then i managed to integrate it all in kind of a dialectic synthesis because uh both um kevin's from skinny puppy mm -hmm. managed to get on staff at expo as uh, production assistants and then that enabled me to have this um, very handy reference library of who was who and what was what in that 80s international industrial underground that was so um, emergent at that point in time and really creatively exciting. Yeah. So, uh, so it was through them that I that I made the connection. Um, with Neubauten, and after the Neubauten concert, I, I thought I'd be fired, yeah. but as it turned out, contradiction being what it is, mm -hmm. the press was so enthusiastic about Expo's daring, yeah. unexpected daring, uh, surprise, who's next? And then they told me about Test Department, so I went after Test Department and hunted them down in their cold water flats in Detford and uh, brought them over for a huge project. So wow. at the end of the day, um, yeah. when Expo ended, Mark Chung, who was the bass player and manager of Neubauten, invited me to come to Germany. And I'd always wanted to go over there, but I didn't have an entree, so I hadn't. And that was the perfect entree. I went straight into the sort of epicenter of Grundnull, as they used to call it, the arts underground art scene in Berlin. Wow. And are, are when you... when. So, so you had an artistic practice at that point, or were you primarily a booker and behind the scenes mover and shaker? Is that? Uh, I had a practice as a producer. I see. I so see. I was very interested in unconventional talent. Yeah, evidently. And I had been for a long time. Okay. Um, at going back to my years as a gallery director for a a student-oriented or young people-oriented art gallery at the University of Alberta. I did a lot of intermedia. I brought some intermedia artists from Vancouver, uh, lots of um, action art, political art, radical art, gender-bending art, yeah. that sort of stuff. I'd, I'd already sort of had a whole career in that. And uh, so, yeah, how do you, was, how do you I was sort a of... sort of creative producer, I guess. And how do you sort of define now as, as, as an artist? You say, is, is, is it spoken word? Is it, um, how, how do you kind of define yourself? Well, I, I'm a bit of a chameleon. But, yeah, um, I see that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's hard, to, I would it's hard say, to capture, I bet, right? It is, but it, and it also depends what part of the world you're, you're in. For yeah. example, um, my brother calls what I do white rap, which I think is just a horrible 
um, <laughs> term. Uh, in Britain, it's yeah. now emerging into the mainstream as performance poetry. Okay. Um, it's called spoken word in Canada, at least in Alberta, through all of the um, leadership that uh, um, you know that's been going on out of Alberta in that genre. Um, so it kind of depends, but I mean, my grandmother used to do it, and she called it elocution. So um, nice one. There are lots of terms for the same thing, but it's storytelling, and it's actually the oldest or one of the oldest mm -hmm. art forms. I think it goes even back before Greek theater, um, the idea of storytelling, and often with music. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in storytelling as performance with music. And who, who inspires you, who, or who did inspire you when you were coming up? And who I guess inspire? I'll follow up with who inspires you now in the in that uh, in that idiom. You know, I really like the last poets. Do you know the last poets? No. In the late seventies, or no, gosh, maybe it was even the late sixties. Yeah. They were a group of black guys from New York, who were very radical. And I think they've come back in or resurfaced in their profile. Somebody was just telling me the other day that they, they had heard about them in some context or other. I can't remember. Um, but they were older than I was, so they're mm -hmm. probably dead by now. I don't know. Anyway, they did these really radical uh, beat-based um, poems about black um, oppression, uh, black lack of agency, all of that. Uh, and they're very radical today. I mean, niggers are afraid of revolution. Have you ever heard that? Sure. It's a, it's a really a great work. So they they influenced me in the beginning. I had their record. I loved it. Okay. I, I always thought that it it fit uh, quite well to um, the condition of women. Yeah. I mean, one could kind of transfer it over and identify. I could transfer over right. and identify with it that way. Wow, wow. And and it was misogynist, I have to say. It, I didn't it, ever remember that. It it wasn't. No, it had it wasn't. It it wasn't um Got it. Their work as I remember it was never about so much about sexual desire as it was about political liberation. So it was easy okay. to um to jump the gender barrier with them. Okay. Very cool. I'll have to check it out. And it's lost, L O S T. Poet. Last. Oh, last. Thank you. Okay, good. I'm glad I asked. L-A-S-T. And, uh, and tell me who, who might be doing the same thing. Who's Who's got your ear these days, Myra? Well, I can't really say. I mean, I'm following all these young women mm -hmm. that are emerging in Great Britain. You know, there's this big um, conflict going on right now. The Guardian is covering it uh, between the um, the literary poets and the performance poets whose work is now being published in print um, for opportunistic reasons by, you know, various like gift book publishers and so on. It's doing very well, but it's it's right. It's it's given rise to opposition by the literary poets. OK, and they're all in, in a nod about that. So there's this whole thing going on and it's really fun. Mm -hmm. um, and. I think the poets, the there's there's a number of young women that are at the forefront. Kate Tempest, of course, very well known. Um, Holly McNeish is kind of coming up behind. 
uh, gaining on her. And and these are all these are young women who who talk uh, quite um, you know about their contemporary life issues, mm-hmm. and usually in, with a, a kind of a rhythm and and uh, sometimes with some musical accompaniment. And they play in pubs. Okay. And and their work is actually getting a lot of uh, profile now. So ergo the the uh, they're being picked up by uh, print publishers and raising uh, hackles with the literary people. And there there are lots of of valid arguments on both sides. I mean the the um, these poets are or these performance poets are. Yeah are using the same culture uh, of the underground of, you know, that isn't, isn't so grounded intellectually as it might be. Or it's not always as crafted as it might be, uh, but it has a direct kind of group identity connect to its audience. Okay, I see. Okay. Um... So, so the same issues exist in music. You know, you can go in and build as a young person on the YouTube uh, mm-hmm. or in in the underground clubs a kind of following, uh, as punk did, with a lack of craft that horrifies um, more accomplished musicians. Right. Right. It's that kind of 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 conflict. But in the end, that kind of conflict always resolves in some kind of merge. Right. Yeah. So punk goes on to influence uh, more accomplished musicians, and punk musicians start to ac- acquire some chops. Well, it's the same, I think, sort of thing. But it, it's mm-hmm. this kind of cooking in the culture and the interaction between the underground and the and the um, non-underground, if you want to call it, or the academia or other levels of cultural activity. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um... Uh, well, you know, your your career uh, is is fascinating to me. The fact that you um you kind of swim through that with uh with the, with the early years, I guess, collaborating with folks like Skinny Puppy or help. I guess you were helping them out, or or what was your role with Skinny? Yeah, Puppy? they were very young at that time, and they were they yeah. were on welfare, and it was very difficult to survive because these guys at EI or whatever it's called UI we're always telling them to get a haircut and oh. stop wearing makeup and, and stuff like that. And they, they just didn't have the ability to um, navigate that while they were working. I saw their work mm-hmm. as uh, in a videotape. You know, I was going through hundreds of videotapes at, at Expo, and I wanted to shoehorn oh. some BC artists into the program somehow because there wasn't much, you know, focus on young BC artist, yeah. artists. Um, so that's the context in which I, I saw their video one Sunday when I was rolling through them at a really fast rate, uh, mm-hmm. in the office all by myself. And, uh, I thought this is, this command of video, of video editing and electronica is really exciting. And yeah. they were, I mean, they were, they were using uh, sampling from, uh, old horror movies in a kind of postmodern ironic way. I mean, they were just intuitively children of their age they didn't have an intellectual understanding they didn't have a lot of art historical context or literary or musical context to put this in Um, but they just had this connect with their generation and Mm. with the technology with the coming means of production if you like and what happens when uh when 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 skinny puppy can kind of um collides with uh neubauten at expo Anything interesting from that? 
Well, of course. Yeah. I mean, they didn't collide at all. The they, the the boys were thrilled to be able to yeah. go out to the airport and pick them up. Oh, neat, neat, neat. Yeah, cool. Take them wherever they wanted to go. I mean, to them, they were, you know, gods. Sure. Um, so that was nice, and I was happy to let them do that. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not really a rock groupie, so I didn't even realize they were actu actually identified with rock at yeah. the time. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, was, I wasn't listening to it in a rock context. So when I heard it, mm -hmm. I just heard um, – innovative use of of audio so the, i guess they, they just did separate uh shows at expo then is that kind of the way that went or, or was there further show. connection um between oh, like say skinny, Sk skinny puppy, puppy and noi Boten? Yeah. no skinny puppy never appeared at expo oh the reason i see i, I see okay the reason i hired them is that i had tried to pre present them wow and that was shut down really uh, yeah. Okay. So, so this was an end run of that, uh, of that Go by uh, a head of onsite entertainment who had been hired from some place called Canada's Wonderland, if you can imagine. Ew. I think it's in in your area. It is. Yeah. And um, and she was she had no idea of art. In fact. She turned me into a, an active rebel. I went there just to make some money. Yeah. And and the first time I, I had a meeting with her, I said to her, look, I'm just here as a hired gun. You tell me what your artistic policy is and I'll deliver. And she said, I don't have an artistic policy. They we're not here to do art. Right. We're here to amuse the rubes from the burbs who are going to walk by yeah. and we want them to be feel they've had a good time that's what you're here to do and i thought you oh. fox face <laughs> <laughs> so what happens when uh, the rube when when the folks from the suburbs are passing by and you've got neubauten doing their thing how did that go over <laughs> well neubauten actually broke the youth uh, the alternative youth cultures boycott of expo which was really naive and stupid i mean i had worked as a as a teenager at expo in montreal okay. i knew that it was an incredible opportunity for young people to come into contact with others from the other parts of the world yeah. i mean it's it's an amazing collection of resources yeah. and like anywhere else it's not it wasn't consistent things are never consistent uh this kind of binary of the man versus the underground i mean it doesn't it's, it doesn't exist mm. in reality there are always counter currents in any subculture and of course at expo there was a whole little cadre of people who were in there to try to open it up and create opportunities and be progressive and in touch with what was really going on and in fact at the higher levels even if jimmy patterson yeah the uh, car dealer billionaire who was the president of it even at his level there was a, a a consensus of interest there because he wanted it to be exciting so there, sure. this is the way these contradictions are always aflow everywhere yeah. and the idea that you know that's uh, that the, that's the man, so we should all boycott it. It's just ridiculous. It's the worst politics in the world. And like the, uh, what's his name, the fellow from uh, DOA, you know, that's the head of, is it Keatley? Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I talked to him because I wanted to do this whole series on BC artists. Wow. And he said, you know, I can't do it. He said, I hear you totally, but yeah. I can't do it because my audience would not understand. They're really bought into the binary. Okay. So, you know, you, ha you can only do what you can do. But Sounds um, like you were really trying to shake things up, though, and challenge the audience, right? Which is what you should be doing. Well, the audience... I was trying to make to make uh, to take advantage of an opportunity of the most am amazing amount of money you can imagine, yep. and incredible facilities. I mean, I had a huge theater with a forty-foot uh, <laughs> wide arc. I think no, I think it was eighty feet and forty feet to the back. I mean, it was huge, and and two IATSE crews mm -hmm. working from morning till midnight. Um, I bet, I bet. And I had a million bucks to spend. Right. We had a million bucks. 1987 dollars, right? Like yeah, that's not the, including not including travel and hotels and yeah, meals. Yeah, just artist fees. Now tell that's me this an, though. Uh, sorry, Myra. Um, if I'm just thinking about it, like this sounds like it's a pivotal moment in your in your development. Well, as um, it turned out, it was, but I didn't think of it. Yeah. I, I didn't know that at the time. Sure. I just went in there to, to, you know, well, first of all, as I said, to make a decent salary for yeah. a while and have benefits. What was the planning and cycle then, like for that? Was it a couple of years? Uh, well, it was more than, it depended who you were. They brought in people yeah. on a flow chart. I was okay. there for about a year and a half, okay. and it was a six-month uh, performance period. It and ran for six months. So how... If you can kind of back up for our listeners, how do you get that gig? Like, how do you get the call for that gig? You don't just magically get well, that call. I wouldn't call, have right? gotten the call for that gig. Sorry? But there was a, but there was a very eccentric, transgressive producer in Vancouver named Murray Farr, and he had a very good old boy buddy yeah. named Chris Wooten, and the two of them had founded the Vancouver East Cultural Center back in the day, ah. and Murray wanted some support. Now, Murray was transgressive in his mm -hmm. programming ideas, mm -hmm. and he wanted somebody who of similar mind but different in their orientation mm -hmm. um, in terms of genres to, uh, you know, to work with him in harness. Cool. And, uh, and I was in Belfast at the time, and this is during the Troubles, so it wasn't such wow. a bad thing to get this little car buzzed up to the front door of my ancient relatives and said... Uh, Oh, you know, you've got to call. You've got to call Vancouver. There's a big job for you. Okay. And, and I'm like, <laughs> you got to be kidding. Yeah. There's a big job for you. So, of course, nobody had a phone, so <laughs> I had to go to one of the hotels and call. And it was Murray calling and saying, you know, can you get back here? Because uh, wow. I think this could be a great gig if you if you come and help me. So cool. we just divided up the countries between us. Wow. And went to work. Wow. So, so, and as I say, at the time, I I had this attitude. Well, okay, so it's a year and a half of a decent salary and, yep. and benefits. I can get my teeth fixed. There you go. Uh, and then after, um, and then after that meeting about when I asked about artistic policy and was told to amuse the rubes. Yeah. I was so furious that I thought I don't need this job. And that's when I started um, working on this Neubauten project. Wow. And that, that changes things for you, I guess, after uh, Expo, right? Well, then so as you, it turned out, it yeah, did because yeah. they invited me to come over there and I'd always wanted to go. So this was a great chance. So I went 
And then, you know, I got very interested because it was a bizarre place, you know, walled Berlin. Yeah. Walled West Berlin was really weird, and East Berlin was even weirder. Yeah. And it was a kind of a free zone, and I was kind of enchanted away in a way by it because it it was so opposite to the cream puff life in Canada. And when the wall came down, were you there or here in Canada? No, actually, I was here having my, I was in Ottawa. Okay. On the 6th of November, having my interview at the East German Embassy because I decided. What? I was very curious about the what was behind the wall. I went over there with Mark Chung because he was having a meeting with Hunter Muller, who was this you know, really well-known um, East German playwright because Neubauten was doing um, Hamletten Machine okay. uh, recording. So I went over there with him, and I was wandering around while they were meeting in German and drinking vodka. And I, it was so bizarre. Sounds awesome. I got, I got quite fascinated. So I went home and wrote, this is pre-internet, mm-hmm. I wrote to the East Germans and told them I wanted to come and do a year of study in one of their universities. So on, um, so on November sixth i was having my interview in the east german embassy Uh and on november 9th the wall came down wow but i went with this huge honking um visa east german visa in my passport yeah and the countries didn't connect uh, did weren't unified until a year later uh in october um you know yeah Okay. It was October the following year. So I arrived. I was there as an East German student. And and did were you able to pursue it? Yes. Yes, wow. I did. Wow. I was there. The whole change. It was weird. Oh, <laughs> it that was sounds... weird. Yeah. In, in what, like, I mean, what are the, some of the high level ways that it was weird? Well, I mean, it, for one thing, I was going, I ended up living in West Berlin. Okay. I I could have lived in East Berlin. The university would have provided me with with um, accommodation, but for reasons I won't bore you with, I decided to live in in uh, in West Berlin, and yeah. then I ended up living f- for a while in this horrible little flat, and then I moved in with Goodrun. Um, so I was going back and forth from west to east. Everyone else was still going up and down their respective sides. There was. Not very much crossover. Certainly none of my West Berlin friends were willing to go over to East Berlin with me. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't interested at that time. So anyway, it was all really interesting. And it was in the spring of that year. Yeah. Goodrum was, when Goodrum was working on a, on a new record mm-hmm. with her colleagues. And when they finished in that spring, she had a couple of days left that she'd already paid for in the recording studio. Okay. And she asked me if I wanted to go in with her and we'll do some recording because at the time I was doing a lot of writing. Okay. I needed to to try to interpret or to keep, come to grips with this bizarre and very, very difficult environment that I was trying to cope with. So, um, yeah, so that's how we started. We did, we laid down a couple of tracks. It was a, kind of interesting for me and uh, then I went home and she said at the end I remember we should do a CD and yeah. I went not this life honey I'm going home I've I've done my time 
And, <laughs> you, you've and done I, your time where? In Germany or as a student? Oh, or I mean, a winter in Berlin yeah, is yeah. winter in a Siberian prison at wow, that time. I mean, wow. there is no doubt about that. It was wow. hideous. And can, living conditions, you know, okay. really rough okay. and um, kind of lawless. It's kind of lawless. I mean, we finished recording it for years later. It lasted. I mean, we'd finish recording it at four in the morning and then yes. stumble down to some cave where the walls had been, holes had been beaten in the walls with sledgehammers and hang out there. And the place would fill up at about 4 a.m. till about eight. Oh, wow. You know, it was quite a lawless environment with an endless supply of cigarettes and alcohol and drugs. And yeah, I guess it, I guess it appealed to me at that time for some reason. I think it counterbalanced to this Canadian neatness, maybe. Yeah, no kidding. It's like it's the complete opposite. But it's it's yeah, but it, all the video footage you see from that time of just like, yeah, I've, I've geeked out on some of that early Neubauten stuff, and it just looked like. Uh, like that era, so special, right? It the was a ruin. Yeah. It was a ruin. The whole city was a ruin. Uh-huh. And the the um, flats were heated with coal ovens in Kreuzberg anyway. Wow. And if you lit them wrong, you know, they could kick back lethal fumes. You had to carry all your coal up the cold staircases. Jeez. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was, you know, Berlin's on a former marsh, like it's a floodplain. Yeah. So it's subject to inversion, and combined with the industrial pollution of the time and all the pollution from the ovens, it created an ocean of fetid, to- fetid, fetid? fetid mm. toxic gas that wow. was trapped between this filthy cloud on the top and the, and the stone below that was all sweating and slimy. I mean, there was a kind of masochistic insanity to it. <laughs> you know, I could have left, yeah, but that was... That would have been capitulation, and I would never do that. So I guess I must have, I don't know. I mean, I was drunk or hungover for most of the time, So, yeah. and it was bitter cold. Wow. I don't know. I do remember feeling like a mutant in a post-apocalyptic cesspool. And you're, and you're born in Alberta, correct? Like you, you, no, no, Manitoba. Oh, you're Manitoba. Manitoba. You're born in Manitoba, so you know cold. Oh, yeah, but this was a different kind of cold. Right, right. This was cold of 30 below with a, with uh, heating. Right. This right, was exactly. the seeping, wet, oh, cold, bitter cold with dirt, everything dirty. I mean, you couldn't warm up, and it would get into your yeah. eyeballs. You could taste the air in your teeth. You could feel it, this grit, you know? And I, it was awesome. really awful. Yeah. Well, it's nice, um, it's so nice to hear a, you uh, wax poetic on it anyways. It was a test. It was for me. It was a test. It was like a long night of the soul. I I did a track about it called Luft. L or, or maybe L U F T Luft. Yeah, air or Berliner Luft. Maybe could it was could we? A, uh, do you have access to that track? Could we? Uh, could oh we, yeah, that could was we on. Cue uh, it up? That was on our a Miasma Two CD. Let's, uh, it was already gone by then. When we when I did the track, it was gone. It was a nostalgic. Uh, kind of evocation of it let's uh let's listen here it comes now luft from miasma 2 those nights back then do you remember remember when you could chew the air in january 
so heavy with coal you could feel the weight of it on your skin. The texture, the gritty texture of it in your teeth. That was air with presence. Do you remember? Berliner Luft. Walking alone at midnight on the path beside Paul Linke Ufer. The water undulating like crude oil beside me. It was comforting. That night, the light was falling down the bank from the street and lying shattered on the path in front of me. And my boots were so loud that I stopped. I stopped and shuddered and shivered and wondered again what brought me there and what kept me there. In those days, do you remember? The sky was never dark in January. It glowed. Luminous indigo orange. And looking at the sky from the path beside Paul Lenka Ufer, looking up through the branches like black lace, that sky with its special chemical radiance was beautiful, like mauve taffeta shot with orange silk. side of the canal, a moving searchlight swept low and passing over two tired swans, two tired and somewhat grimy swans, floating on the water. It hit my retina, provoking a flight-fight response. That was countermanded in the next instant by the thought that it was only a light, reflecting off the water into my eye. and a lower brainstem response. Nothing to worry about, really. Still, I decided to pick up the pace, to move along, to get the hell out of there. I wasn't convinced it was more rational to feel safe. it didn't kill me well or it hasn't yet those years in berlin uh so how many years are we talking about uh when, well, when it... i'm still 
I'm still living in Berlin. Yeah. I mean, I I spend six months of the year there. Yeah, right. So it's 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 pretty much from then till now. But it's not <laughs> the same at, now. Yeah, no, 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 no kidding, no kidding. Um, no, the air is very clean. I couldn't yeah. take it now. I mean, I'm sure I couldn't take it now the way it was, way and it I was. still don't want to spend the winter there. Yeah, but but it's not at all like it was. So. You know, I mean, when the wall fell, then came this. It, it took a long time to change, though. Yeah. You know, yeah. a year, decades. Yeah. But the rents certainly went up quickly. Hmm. So for artists, it was it was quite difficult because the American funding dropped away too. I mean, most of this happy stuff that was going on was paid for by American funding because they had to keep a population in the city to justify their occupation of it. Yeah. And, and and certainly nobody would live there. You know, no normal middle class. There were no, there was no middle class or upper class there. Hmm. Yeah, it's a fa- it's a fascinating time, eh? That and that evolution of especially of Berlin, kind of in the center of it all. Hmm. Yeah. Then it became again this the capital of Germany. Right. But it was the capital of Germany when the wall was up. It was the capital of East Germany on the east side. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it was it was really interesting to be wow to be there for all of that that history and I feel very fortunate but I didn't seek it out I just kind of fell into it. And especially to be connected through this like very important underground of 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 no or you know that that connection to Neubauten and the underground noise music and all that you know it's uh yeah, it was Very perfect. Exciting. You know, yeah. when I say it was, it just happened by chance. I hmm. actually, I'm not so sure that's true. I think there might have been some subconscious navigation going on uh-huh. that I wasn't, that I'm not aware of. But when I look back <laughs> and see how, yeah. how well it 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 served my psychological and creative needs, I have to, I have to suspect that maybe there was more going on there than just happenstance. Well, you've certainly you've certainly etched out this relationship with Gudrun and Beate that spans how many years now, or decades, should we say? Gosh, nearly thirty. Yeah, Is it thirty. I think it's nearly thirty. We started in nineteen ninety, mm. so yeah, it's twenty eighteen. And how has that nearly collaborative uh, relationship bloomed over the years? Well, you know, it's been up and down, but somehow it goes on. I mean, at this point. This uh, it changed a lot. Conditions mm-hmm. changed. You know, we um, the BAMP Center ceased to become a production house for me when uh, it uh, well it was uh, taken over by the by a kind of neoliberal leadership. That was the board's choice, and that happened actually just as Gudrun and I did our first residency there. Okay. Um, and over the next 10 years, it, it morphed, or 20 years, it, it morphed from an art school into whatever it is now. I mean, whatever, their, their mission isn't really clear, to, isn't very clear. It kind of depends on where the money is. Yeah. Um, but artists certainly aren't central to it anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's not a production house for me at all mm-hmm. uh, at this stage. And in and in the other side, I mean, the first 10 years, though, we had those two sides working in sync and our com- complementary skill sets as well. So it worked kind of nicely. Um, but then, uh, then the music industry crashed, right, in the early sure. 2000s. Sure. And that meant that Goodrin had to completely re 
rejig her business plan and she ended up with i think a lot of debt she had to pay off from her distributors and you know it was really tough and she managed somehow i don't know whether it was acumen or stubbornness or both mm -hmm. to put her her business back together and her career and maintain her career um and we continued to make records uh, under my name. I think we've done three so far since since then. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, somehow you you go on. Well, it's funny because um, you know the, the the music industry is sort of di died, as you say. But I mean, it's a lot. I, I still feel like it's a lot better off in Germany than it is, let's say, here in Canada. Or so it's just different, but there seems like there's a greater network of support out there every time yes, I've been. I know? would say so. Well, there was yeah. always a problem in Canada. I yeah. mean, from our from my point of view, we never toured in Canada, sure. although Goodwin wanted to. We did a couple of shows and in invitationals, but yeah. and, and uh, but uh, we can't work here because mm -hmm. we don't do bar bands. I mean, we don't sling, we don't sell beer. Yeah, we never did sell beer. Um, so it's this kind of rock guys. Well, Terry David Mulligan, my friend. My ask, <laughs> yeah. I asked a friend of mine way back. Yeah. Goodwin really wanted to to have a, to do to work in Canada, right. and I kept telling her, you know, it's not going to happen. <laughs> and she said, and she kept bogging me about it. So I I asked a friend of mine to speak to who knew Terry David Mulligan to yeah. call, give him a call, and see what he had to say about this. And and he left her the most wonderful message on her answering machine. Yeah. <laughs> it was Jane, no way. They want guys with guitars, mm. and that's it. Mm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Wonderful, isn't that? And unfortunately, <laughs> and Jane herself resents this to this day. She deleted the message because I yeah. would have loved to have that yeah, because right. that sums it right up. Just loop, now, loop maybe that statement. Jane, yeah. Pardon? I said loop that statement, right? <laughs> oh, really? Really? I mean, and he was yeah. absolutely right. You know, At the and time, then there was yeah, or and sadly, maybe one, still, you know, I, I hope it's changed a bit now. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, touring, touring around, and even if we'd gone the art route to tour yeah. Manitoba or Alberta in a van doing arts council shows, that wouldn't have been my thing, you know. Like yeah. I was way past that by the time I started this, so yeah. there was no way for that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and then and then Goodwin wanted distribution in Canada, so I got a friend of mine. Um, Don Gordon, who had the electronic project called Numb. I don't know if you remember him. No. But anyway, he uh, it was a very um, industrial electronic okay. project. Anyway, he he uh, got me a distribution out of Vancouver across Canada. Oh, cool. And a couple of years later, I got the call from the distributor. You know, yep. we just can't we just can't move this product because there's no place to rack it at Sam's. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that also a great comment. No, you can't rack it at Sam's. Yeah. Well, Sam's is gone now, of course, but yeah. um, and we're still here, which how I guess you, is something. Yeah, how do you feel about that? Kind of outliving the yes, a lot of these old uh, you know institutions have died, but 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 you continue to kind of push Juggle. forward. Yeah, how does that make? It's amazing. Know. I mean, that's why I loved. I, I mean, this thing that happened this year was yeah. so comic in its irony, mm -hmm. in a way. I just delight. Um, December 23rd, I got the best Christmas present ever. Mm -hmm. It was a review of Sirens from The Guardian in London. Yeah. And, um, oh, God, uh, what did they say? Uh, let's see here. I go, 
Oh, yes. Sirens Review. Witty spoken word skewering of violence, patriarchy, and modern music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a rave, right? It's five out of five stars. Yeah. Um, yeah, right on. Was, and that was such a gift. I mean, I, I just felt like, okay, I can leave the stage now. That is a terrific note. Even if I can never do any, any more, mm-hmm. that's a great that's a great bookend, you know, for this uh, for this journey. Wow, and I, Myra. I don't yeah. know, but if it is yep. that if it is the end, then I'm pretty happy with that uh, as a as an achievement mm-hmm. or as a recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have no idea how it happened because we don't even have our our promotion doesn't doesn't go in the UK, wow. so that's wow. a mystery. You know, we so, just what, what what was can you repeat the quote of of the of the patriarchy and and sorry I I kind of I missed the uh, it's, it's beautiful sirens yeah. witty spoken words skewering violence patriarchy and modern music modern music is because there's a piece in there it's it's a bit off actually there's a piece on that album which is called sirens yeah uh, called cage everywhere. And it's about the aura around John Cage awesome. in the six in the late sixties. It's not a critique of Cage himself at all. Sure, it's it's a critique of the aura yeah. around these cult figures. Yep. So anyway, oh, I so love it's it. not really dissing his music so much as dissing that that bullshit, you know, that yeah. of celebrity. Well, it's it's is, funny. I read a. I read an article on 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 John Cage and the idea of uh, 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 I think of what you're touching on in that it does even four minutes and thirty three seconds of silence. Well, then who does it silence? And then is it potentially you know this article was kind of steering it towards is it silencing women? And I thought that was a really interesting take on 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 that. Right, something that I would have never. I, given my kind of you know perspective, I guess uh, correlated, you know, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, so I don't know it if that's yeah. It is interesting how um, the POV of the female POV is yeah. beginning to um, actually lap up against the walls of of kind of male cluelessness, if I can say that without. Yeah wanting to be insulting but it's just uh it's just a a a result of the entitlement Mm -hmm. that there's no been no need to develop this consciousness Mm um so it's quite i mean i saw a guy uh really a hip young black painter on the bbc who was painting um uh painting drops for a new ballet of diana Okay. You know, Diana the Huntress. Okay, so the story is Diana, this creep is, is in the bushes. She's all by herself taking mm. a bath, mm. and he's hiding in the bushes watching her, and she discovers him. Mm. So she turns him into a, a, a deer, mm. uh, which kind of creates, puts him in a vulnerable position, and his own hunting dogs kill him. Wow. Um Cool. So this guy, <laughs> so this guy's painting the drops, yeah. and the interviewer in BBC says... Uh, uh, so he's talking. He says, oh, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, so I went and read up on it. Yeah, it's a, she's taking a bath, and this guy's watching her. I mean, I don't get it. What's the deal there? Yeah. Uh, and the interview, of course, what the deal is there 
Tell us, yeah. <laughs> this, this woman is entire. This goddess or not, she's entirely vulnerable. A woman mm. in that position, and in that setup, the next thing that happens, we all know. Yeah. I mean, if you're a female, you immediately think, okay, the next thing that's going to happen is she's yeah. going to be attacked. Right, right, right. Um, but this is clueless. You know, this guy doesn't get this at all. And the interviewer who's interviewing him, he's just as thick. He doesn't pick up on it either. Yeah. So that's the end of, end of the clip. And I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are we going to do in order to open these people's eyes to the, to the reality that we live in? Yeah. Well, I think that's happening now. Uh, and that's a good thing. It it's is gotta a be great a good thing. thing. Yeah, it's a huge paradigm shift. You know, and I still think I still I still think obviously it's 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 it goes without saying that so much more work needs to be done because uh, you know we just heard over the last week to to date this a little bit, but on the um, the Patrick Brown, the uh, the leader of the Provi the Progressive Conservative Party oh, out here in Ontario, that. right and. Yeah. Uh, You'd be surprised, you know. You turn on the radio. I would be surprised. I bet. I bet I not. I, I, you know, it's, I'm an it, old lady. I it, wouldn't be surprised. It's it's sad. it's very sad to me to hear people kind of defending this the 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 trial that he's been given by by media or the caucus. You know, he, there there is a an executive. Uh, uh, the provincial conservative party have an executive and so there's 22 23 members of that that also scrutinized him so he's been given kind of a fair enough trial in in a political sphere yeah. that we're in you know i don't know how much but it's surprising to me that people would even take the the opinion that um that it's unfair i mean i mean why don't we lean on the side of believing those who came forward instead of even what are well, we what are we defending? There is the question, right? Well, I mean, that's, that is a very good question to raise at all times because yeah. what we're defending is the past, and what we're defending and what we're we're feeling is anxiety about yeah. change. Yeah, um, there are lots of women who are very anxious about change, and 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 that manifests in this um, apology kind yeah. of approach to all of this uh, apologetic for male behavior yeah. or let's be understanding. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't just automatically because reason and justice is on the side of the people who are disempowered. Yeah. Does, it doesn't automatically mean things are going to change. You know, there are all sorts of psychological resistances going on. So in to go back to my work, in yep. one of my main themes, certainly in miasma and later as well, mm -hmm is to that women should look at themselves honestly about the bullshit you know that they perpetuate or that we perpetuate you know and all the fetishes of femininity and the masquerade and the games and the the really um sort of delusionary mm -hmm. or treacherous way we present ourselves mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or certainly dishonest way that we present ourselves you know we are conditioned to do that for various reasons and there's gain in it yeah, um, yeah. but let's not let's not delude ourselves about what we're doing here you know why we're doing it um so that that is a very i'm very familiar with the difficulties of 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 kind of penetrating the veil uh, on that on that level, even yeah. though at the end of the day, if we could get rid of all this, yeah. it would really liberate both males and females. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. But it does mean that that the power relations, mm -hmm. the nature of the power relations, would have to change. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's vested interests involved. 
Yeah. So that's that's the reality of the struggle. And then when you get down to people's feelings about it, well, they can be like very foggy and irrational and, and but deeply tightly rooted. Held. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tightly, tightly held. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so there you are. I mean, this whole thing about the the feeling and the 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 uh, what the priority or the elevation of the value of feeling that we're in right now that we see in Trump and mm-hmm. all that. Mm-hmm. We also see that in the underground, uh, in the underground art scene that, that somehow, for example, this part of this argument with the British performance poets is that mm-hmm. the, uh, the work on the plus side, mm-hmm. the work has an authenticity and a direct, a direct address that, um, carefully crafted poetry and writing doesn't have mm-hmm. you know and it also has a, a temporal relevance so we are speaking generationally to your your uh, peers in a pub or wherever uh, right, you know in these right. little stages but the thing is it's not necessarily challenging your peers in the pub I mean most of what the underground does in my experience is validate the prejudices that are held by the other people, by the audience in the underground, hmm. you know what I mean, or the not if not the prejudice, at least the appetites. Right. I mean that's what happens. But then again, you know, life's contradictory. So in the underground, I, I is, the underground's been very good to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm not doing that. I'm always uh, I have a very critical attitude to the 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 tropes of the underground. And I don't think they're all that much more different than than the mainstream in their misogyny and in their kind of dumbass ideas, you know, <laughs> dumbass feelings. But that's not everybody. There's always a counterpoint in yeah. there. Um, and if it weren't, I wouldn't have done so well in the underground, you know, because yeah, I'm not yeah. in that. So that that interplay between the over overground, or if you want to call it that, and the underground is it's very interesting. It's very dialectic. Mm. Well, um, let's uh, let's let's play. Um, I want to thank you for for making time today. I think. Uh, well, I, there's a few more questions I'd like to ask you, but um, let's play uh, one more tune. To uh, could could we play something from the new recording, uh, Sirens? Why don't you try um, siren calls because it relates to what we've just been talking about. Is that about. the is that the piece on cage? No, it's called siren call. Siren call. Here it comes now. Siren call. Maybe we'll. Yeah, here it comes. Well, now look at you, sailor girl, paddling your own canoe captain on the voyage. Just so you know, you will hear sirens, as Ulysses did, singing to the dreamer asleep within. Unmanning, they used to call those when only men moved and made records. You will hear sirens. The siren calls, whatever yours may be, stir the soul. Give it up for Jesus. Give it up for Give it up for rock and roll. Give it up for love. And if you're not swept away, three square meals a day may tempt you to give up your quest. There's no word for the inclination to abandon your odyssey. 
someone else's offer to paddle so you can float like Ophelia in a haze of lazy days or an Ottoman odalesque at the spa or so you imagine you may say I'll never dance for daddy again but doing it your way not an easy sustain in the long haul fact of life the station of wife given some negotiating authority can appear attractive in these days of shrinking economic gains not least as a private unemployment package an escape from the problem of identity or just something to do when nothing else works for you and then there are all those women eager for doing seeking realization and negation to whom a leap into the void of bondage feels like the ultimate freedom short of suicide men will offer harbor a port in the storm though like a deal with the mafia there's no guarantee your protective he won't suck your blood till he's had his fill and throw you over chances are he will then why shouldn't he if he's paying for it love please that's not how this works princess no that doesn't look jaded to me it looks like the rocky coast of reality freedom is the fantasy smoke and mirrors music and very lights whatever your route sailor moon best you tend your charts and navigate with those big eyes open about that What do you love the most about kind of what you do and where this journey has taken you? Oh, ah, that's a good question. I mean, I, what were, what do let me count the ways? I mean, mm -hmm. I it's allowed me to travel in Europe in a, and to get to know something about Europe to become involved with Europe in a in a participatory way rather than as a visitor. So mm -hmm. I, I really have enjoyed that. I, I think Canada isn't enough for me. Mm. Um, I needed some other part of my life, mm. uh, some other place to to be in, cool, to be cool. part of. Now, I'm not a European, so I'm always an other, an outsider there, but I I really like being part of that, that space. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm able to do that because I have an Irish passport. I see. So um, that's one thing. Then I wanted to develop writing skills, but I wasn't creatively, but I wasn't really sure where to go with that. And the spoken word uh, thing allowed me to really focus in on developing the ability to tell a, a story with some symbolic resonance in a very concise way. So the the length of a recording, you know, doesn't allow for a lot of blather, at least not the way Goodrun works. 
Okay. She's very disciplined. She doesn't want anything more than five minutes max. And sometimes there only has to be, we have to get it out in three minutes. Okay. So that, that really compresses your ideas and your language. And I really, I learned to write very succinctly yep. um, in order to do that. I, I enjoyed the performance angle too. That was wonderful. The opportunity to kind of try out theatrical ideas and interact with audiences. So that was very, um, and you know what I really like mm -hmm. is when I get the lists from SOCAN mm -hmm. where they tell you where the downloads were. Yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah. My downloads are all over the world. Are your downloads all over the world? Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's cool. I love to read that some woman in, I don't know, Uzbekistan yeah. has somehow yeah. got stuff. And it's I presume it's usually women because that's usually my audience. Although the, they weren't really – there were lots of uh, young men at the shows that we did in, in when we were touring the club scene. So whether mm -hmm. we'd bang up this, the, the sound levels and, you know, just throw this blast, this blitz of media out there – because that wasn't a context in which subtle uh, nuances of language could really be um, understood, mm -hmm. considering most people didn't speak English. So there was that. That was fun. That, that gave me a chance to really um, sort of act out uh, physically and go into all this kind of media, explore um, wild media imagery and stuff. So that was fun, too. I mean, there's it was really a rich run, a really rich experience. I was very lucky, in a way, that I, I these doors opened and, and and allowed me to develop talents that I didn't really know I had. Well, so, it's it's, a, it's a, a fascinating journey, and I'm really honored to uh, to shine a light on it here with the podcast, Myra. Thanks well, for thank for opening up. And um, we're gonna we're gonna finish now with this piece on John Cage. Uh, what is the name of the piece? It's called Cage Everywhere. Oh, yeah. Cage Everywhere. Skewering violence, patriarchy, and modern music. Uh, <laughs> I like you say. I'm not really down on modern music, you know. <laughs> Thank you so much, Myra. All the very best. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye. John Cage had a friendly face, a very friendly face, smiling easily to friends in New York and beyond, crossing the continent in film cans, snaking on sprocket-driven 16-millimeter film, clickety-clack, front reel to back, somewhere in between, mounting the beam to ride through cigarette smoke to the screen. Cage's friendly face also traveled on AT&T phone lines in Namjoon Pak's early real-time video links and occasionally even on broadcast TV. By this early instance of media convergence, Cage became the face of the New York avant-garde. Everywhere. Everywhere. A lost-in-space gray wizard face speaking in riddles 
if at all. On the ground, Cage was promoted by very real, keen and frequently pompous young men in turtlenecks who extracted a toll in deference and more from young women. If something is boring after two minutes, try it for four. If still boring, then eight, then 16, then 32. Eventually, one discovers it is not boring at all. John Cage. The New York avant-garde was a white guy, comfort zone, art, stripped to the bone. Had no need to heed inequality, napalm, the fall of American democracy, and the race war in the streets. Art for art's sake. Recently, an old turtleneck remarked, trying to explain cage to provincials back then was never worth our time. Though back then, there was no shortage of time. Everything involving John Cage took forever, or felt like it did. Young women hoping to join the flow, to be in the know, part of the show? No. Our role, a charade, masquerade of femininity. In Cage's art of idea, chance and change are central. In the art of femininity, chance is restricted like options for women in the avant-garde, and not much change there. Opus 2, 1962, solo to be performed in any way by anyone, running time indeterminate. In a situation provided with maximum amplification, no feedback, perform a disciplined action. John Cage. One, art of femininity, determinable. When in doubt, while you work it out, shining hair, a soul-filled stare, and hold for external resolve. She was still young enough to be astonished at what a girl can get away with that way. 18, new on the scene, without consent, at a cage event, she performed a situationalist act of resistance. Raccoon hair, raccoon eyes, micro mini, snow white thighs, silver lips, a sliver apart. She arrived ten minutes before the start and erected a pole of opposition. Sitting tall, fetish doll in a lecture hall, she ruptured cage time in the way we all know. Slow mo alabardo, framed by Godard. Always a hard act of defiance, hard act of defiance. The clicking film, trusting the reverence to hold, meandered blind, unknowing, even as it frayed and strayed, and turtlenecks twisted to peer back into the haze of smoky light, looking for a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. In the art of femininity, projection is central. She knew, as we all do, the price of women's place in the avant-garde, boredom and sex, are equally requisite in the performance of femininity and for maximum amplification in a situationalist performance of a disciplined act of resistance. Though her young body screamed for escape, she held for 30 minutes, then slipped away, leaving the twisted turtlenecks to disappointment 
when finally the film ended and the lights came on. And the lights came on indeed. Thank you so much, Myra Davies, for sharing your story with us on Industry Tactics. That was the track Everywhere Cage from her last release entitled Sirens, her collaboration with longtime friends and artists that she works with, um, Gudrun Gutt and Beata Bartel. We'll see you again very soon. If you want to check out, uh, we started a new little thing on my Instagram. It's called uh, Parliamo. It's a little collaborative project with my brother, Adam. Hope you enjoy that little clown work, little Italian translation uh, exercises that uh, hark back to the days of Saul the Clown, the French clown. So if you're enjoying the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at Industry Tactics. And we'll see you again very soon with another episode. Goodbye.